Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the Elixir Wizards Conference, the 2021 version. All the videos are now released on YouTube, and you can find them online. I have a link in the show notes to the playlist where you can find all of them together. So if you weren't able to attend that conference virtually, you can make sure you can catch up on anything you thought was really interesting. If you are interested in the Testing Elixir book, it's now gone into production, and there is a 40% off promo code. LM Elixir Complete. Check the show notes to get the exact spelling for that. So if you've been holding out, now is a good time to grab a copy. Elixir 1.13 is going to get a new feature called, uh, or, or an improvement rather, on Mix XRAF Graph. It gets some updates to help resolve dependencies. We'll link to that in the show notes, but we'll go deeper into this next week. So stay tuned for that. The improvement here is that it's a lot faster about finding transitive dependencies. You might be asking yourself, what is a transitive dependency? Transitive dependency is one of those dependencies that is induced after compile time. For example, you call logger. Logger is a direct dependency, but logger depends on IO. And so IO is your transitive dependency. It's all those induced dependencies, you know, after, usually when your, your program is running. So yeah, some pretty cool updates coming to that in Elixir 1.13. So stay tuned for that. And as we'd mentioned before, ES Build, it's the Go application that's used as a Webpack replacement that can do a lot of asset pipeline build development tool. We talked about how Phoenix 1.16 will be shifting to that. And one of the final technical hurdles that was, they were kind of waiting for ES Build to fix in their upstream has now cleared the way. And what it was is it was for Elixir applications, it would somehow create a zombie OS process. And with that fixed, and totally resolved, it looks like we should be expecting a Phoenix 1.16 any day now. So I, I haven't been following any other open issues, but I think that was the last one that I was aware of. It was a dependency they were holding out for. So I'm excited. Yeah, that's, that's on VOS problem. That's, that plagues a lot of libraries. I think that plagues Webpack for a long time even. There's lots of little scripts that you can run. Like I think, I think it's even in the docs for Elixir on a bash script to prevent zombie processes when your OT, when OTP, you know, crashes or the, the process that, that is supervising it crashes, whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just zombie processes, apparently more than just, you know, a, a periodic issue. It's, it's an issue everywhere, <laughs> even in cool stuff like ES build. I did just want to mention though, we also have a link in the show notes that you can check out to a project that Jose Valim created to show how you can use ES build on an existing Phoenix application. And it, here's a link to the commit where he shows how to do that. And I'm looking forward to seeing more involved migration paths, kind of documentation around that. Like, especially if I'm using all these other libraries where there's a webpack config or something that has to be hooked in. Like, how do I do that with ES build? So I'm looking forward to seeing some of that stuff. Like, how do I hook in Tailwind and Alpine? Do I need to? What what happens? I just got really good at PSOX grep node, <laughs> like, typing that out really fast. So Oben 2.8.0 was released along with Oben Pro 0.8.2. includes a number of fixes, the main focus, and the new feature is around time unit scheduling. Rather than expressing a scheduled time in seconds requiring you to do the math to compute it, now you can specify time using tuples like one and then minute as an atom. That's pretty cool. One little tip uh, for libraries that don't exactly have the support for like tuples is that Erlang uh, has like a, a colon timer 
you know, there's, there's a timer function on it and on it, you can specify minutes, seconds, hours, I think just time Now you can't, I don't think you can do days and no. such, um, it gets a little bit more complicated when you get to those kind of units, but instead of like just recording five minutes manually with like, you know, milliseconds or seconds or something, I've changed all of my, <laughs> all of my usages of that to just, just use the timer function. <laughs> it's so much easier. You can, you can actually read what's going on there and not mm. just see a bunch of numbers. What's, what's that supposed to represent? Yeah. That was one nice thing about rails active support kind of adding that we could do one dot minute even dot ago yes that's pretty cool yeah that's, those are some great helpers yeah so this is an i like this tuple though just because it it does read well so you can like english wise read it but yeah it's a it's a difference between you know data versus objects all right there's a new blog post on the elixir lang website um it's about uh x-plane we've we've interviewed them here before so uh, we will uh we'll leave a, sh- a link to the show uh with uh the x-plane folks but the blog post is about bootstrapping a multiplayer server with Elixir at X-Plane. Uh, so here's, here's a quote from it. A couple months ago, they distributed an updated client version with debug code in it. Whoops. This additional code caused each connected user to constantly ping the server every 100 milliseconds, even if not in multiplayer mode. And this caused their traffic to increase 1,000 times. They only discovered this increase two weeks later when they saw the CPU usage in their Elixir server went from 5% to 21%. <laughs> only 21%. Once they found out the root cause and how the system handled it, they realized that they didn't have to rush a client update to remove the debug code, and they chose to maintain their regular release cycle. Just want to point out there, that's a thousand times of, of traffic increase, not, not necessarily a thousand X, you know, of users. It's good to see that it was handled fine. Metrics probably could have alerted you long before the two weeks was, was there. And metrics seem to always come later as part of a maturing project for a team. So I know it takes a different set of skills to get metrics up and running and uh, part of your discipline of, of monitoring and all that, but. Anyway, great blog post, a happy accident, I'd say, and uh, a really interesting read. So go check it out. Yeah, I know that with my own personal projects, when I'm just trying to get a service up and a proof of concept, you know, validating the idea, I'm not focused on metrics. Like I haven't yet shifted into that mindset. So I totally understand how you can get there yeah. and just like not be aware of what's going on with your user counts or anything like that, especially if the service is not having a problem that you're not being alerted by users. Oh, it's broken. If that's not happening, then sometimes you're just not looking. So it's just a good reminder. Yes, it's important to set that up, but it's super awesome that it handled it really gracefully. (laughs) And even if they did have alerting and stuff, it's not like it's going to kick in at 21%, right? 21% is pretty healthy. So they may have just like, our server's good. Like no one's checking because nothing's going off. (laughs) Yeah, I've got several little projects deployed in places and the metrics, that's a harder thing for me to get set up on personal projects because usually those things cost money. And I know that that's probably worth it, right? But for five personal projects, I'm not paying five bills for that stuff. So I don't know. I'm open for tips on how to do that without putting on my DevOps hat for a while. You know, I don't want to do that necessarily either. (laughs) I don't want to set up my own Prometheus and Grafana and all that. Imagine if there was a service that just came built in with Prometheus. (laughs) Maybe I should use Promax. Maybe I should, uh, maybe I should boost uh, Alex a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for the news. Today, we're joined by our special guest, Joel Kemp. Joel, thanks for coming and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. 
we've been really excited to have you on and talk with you. So you are currently working at Spotify. I think maybe a few of our audience members may have heard of that company. And you wrote up recently about how you brought Elixir into that company and how it was filling a need, a business need. And I thought it was a super exciting opportunity to talk about that and get an insight both from you, like, you know, what is it like working in a company like this and bringing a new technology like Elixir into a company like that, that already has a strong set of this is the way we do things. Because I think a lot of us who are Elixir advocates and excited about Elixir, you know, we want to be able to do that for our own company. So any insight would be awesome to help get. Uh, but before we jump into all that, maybe we can learn a little bit more about you. So like, where do you live and what kind of work are you currently doing? I am Joel. I'm a staff software engineer at Spotify. I've been there for about five years. I'm based out of Queens, New York with my lovely wife and two children. I guess a little backstory before my current work is that uh, I was a teacher a long time ago and, and that's helped quite a bit actually in terms of some educational aspects of, of um, new technology and then I spent a lot of time doing front-end development, so building client-rendered applications and server-rendered applications as well, and and so uh, lots of single-page apps being built. And then started at Spotify and spent the first two and a half years building an ad platform for small and medium-sized businesses, and that was relatively low traffic, and so you could really do horrendous things on the JVM and, <laughs> and get away with it. For a while, and then it would bite you, and then it hurts really bad. But that that was awesome, actually. I was like really happy user of the JVM at that time because you could just tap into the wealth of libraries, and you really didn't have to worry about what those libraries were doing in terms of concurrency. So that that was nice. And then I moved into an area for the next two and a half years that's building a another ad platform for letting artists promote their work, and that dealt more with high traffic. And that's really what started to surface uh, the pain that led me to the beam. Nice. So you mentioned that you're using the JVM there. Is that the default tech stack at Spotify? There are a number of languages that are supported there for consumer-facing backend services, meaning if you're a listener playing music or podcast or what have you, any sort of backend system that that is in that flow, uh, that's written in Java. And for data pipelines, basically extract, transform, load pipelines. Those are written in Scala for any machine learning centric tasks. Those are in Python and, and the front end for web apps. It's React single page applications, basically the, the path forward there. It's interesting. You mentioned Scala, which is also a JVM language. Python is not, I don't think maybe there is a version of Python that runs on the JVM, but I don't, they're probably not using that. No. So, I am curious, you said you had gotten, I mean, there'd be a lot I'd love to talk with you about, like your whole journey through being a teacher, right? That's really cool. And then somehow finding programming. And maybe we could just talk about that briefly. So it sounds like you went from teaching full time into doing development. It sounds like web development is kind of where you went into. Is that right? Yeah, I was a PhD student. And when you're a PhD student, they let you teach at universities with uh, zero training. <laughs> and so, I, uh, but but luckily for me, I, I fell in love with the craft. It's really a performance art, and there's nothing really more rewarding than seeing someone get a concept and develop passion for programming. So I was teaching introduction to programming in Python, and then some courses in C plus plus. And then decided to leave the PhD after about five years 
and joined a few web companies, anyone that would take me at the start. Uh, and uh, because I was doing computer vision work in, in, um, in the PhD. And so I was using MATLAB, which introduced me to lambdas and it was like so beautiful. And, and so I ended up uh, hedging my bets and going with the, the JavaScript route. So I wrote a few JavaScript open source libraries as to build up a portfolio and just managed my way into the web industry from there. Nice. So one of the things you mentioned, I would like to jump back into uh, the main topic where you talked about how you came to Elixir. And it sounded like you worked on some Java internal tools and you said it was more ad focused, less traffic. You didn't have to worry so much about performance, multi-user concurrency kind of thing until you did. Running into some of those pain points is kind of what pushed you to the beam. I am curious about how you ended up finding a, the beam as a solution for that at all. I was beating my head against the wall, so to speak, trying to understand and, and master the stack that I had in production. And the main reason is that when you shed load, that's usually an incident and you want to find out why you were shedding load. And so tracing can help you there in terms of identifying, like, was it the query to a database that was taking long, a long time, or were you spending a ton of time in your actual service itself in your application logic? But then if you are, in fact, spending most of your time in your application logic, then you have to try and understand what's actually happening there. And that's where concurrency really comes into play. And so I spent days and days studying that stack, learning about all the thread pools that were there, their purpose. But what, what I couldn't get access to was understanding the handoff, like the control flow between threads in order to really understand where most of the work was being spent. And part of this study was really to say, hey, if I had double the load on a single instance of my service, what would go wrong? Which configuration was wrong? Which like thread pool needed to be larger? Like where, at what layer would things break down? And I, I just, I couldn't see that. I, I couldn't get any of the insights there. And I had like Grafana dashboards that had 30 different graphs more than that. And it's just like, okay, where do things tick up at the same time? And okay, GC, like, all right, well, what about GC? And then you create another 10 graphs to try and figure out like, what's going <laughs> wrong there. And, and so a teammate, Nico joined around the same time and was talking about Elixir and the actor model and how it could be helpful. And after you hear that stuff for a couple days, nonstop, you, you just, at least I got curious about it and found Sasha Eric's talk. And uh, once he opened up the IEX REPL, Sasha Eric in, in the talk opened up the IEX REPL and, and then did a sort of the processes based on reductions and was able to identify the exact process that was problematic and the function that it was calling. I was floored by that. It was, I just wanted it so badly after days and days of like tearing my hair out, trying to understand and going through layers and layers of abstraction. And so yeah. that's how I stumbled onto the beam. And I think at that point forward, it was. Okay. That talk sold me. Yes. Sashirik's talk sold me. I read Elixir in action. And at that point it was, okay, I'd like to experiment with this further, but in order to really do so, I had to build a case around it to lay out a hypothesis, lay out an experiment we'd like to run and then share out the results and so forth in order to decide what the next steps were. And so part of building a case is you can't just blindly say, Hey, I think this is good. We should just use it. Or like I had to do my homework with this. 
And so I immersed myself in understanding this technology. But part of that is it's not just enough to understand the beam. You also have to be able to compare it to the status quo. And so I had to learn a ton about the JVM and the beam kind of led. So I, I learned about the JVM through this magnifying glass called the beam, if you will. <laughs> and so I've learned a ton as a result and was able to become further convinced with the beam and the deep introspection. And from that, I, I, I built a case for it and uh, that didn't go very well, even though it was 26 pages and very thorough and listed out about seven or eight dimensions of the beam. And it's not enough to just compare it to the status quo because you also have to say, what about Scala closure? What about go? What about rust? And be able to have an argument why those technologies are not a good fit. All this is leading up to live view and how through that rejection of being able to use the beam for high traffic backend service, we had an opportunity that we had some constraints, some serious constraints where we really needed a web app with no time and no people. And the beam kind of was top of mind for me. And, and there was another opportunity to, to really try to swing again at the beam and, and have it fill a void. So, um, th that's, but that's, that's how I found it. Wow. And so you, you mentioned Sasha Yurik's, uh, talk. Was that the soul of Erlang? Which talk was that? Yeah. Soul of Erlang and Elixir. Gotcha. Such a happy accident. It was masterful. I've watched it maybe five to six times. I thought about watching it again today. It's been so incredibly <laughs> impactful. Yeah. And, and no, that, that's great. Yeah. I was, I was writing Elixir at the time and I saw that. And I'm like, hmm. Dang, I'm glad I'm writing this language. <laughs> Gosh, 27 pages. Is that the PhD coming out, out of you a little bit to, uh, to convince and lay the evidence for? I, I'm curious. You don't have to go into details, obviously, but was there an overarching reason why they, they said no? There's another lesson in here, which is that everything in programming is sociotechnical in that there's always people involved and when you're thinking about objectively analyzing technology, you cannot just speak to the merits of technology. You actually have to incorporate people and you have to be aware of the political layers and so forth on top of what you're trying to do. What are the standards that are trying to be enforced? Where is the platform going that supports the infrastructure for the company? I think the 27 pages was really, hey, this is not a surface level argument. This is the real deal. And we want to use this and here's why. And I also think that it's very easy to reject an initiative or a proposal when it's really just one or two people pitching it. It's very different when you have a swarm of people that are advocating for this thing and that are supporting it and that are willing to volunteer their time. And so swarms are respected and individuals less so. That's all that I can really get from uh, the rejection is that there is a particular path that the company wants to take the technology and there is seemingly not enough differentiated value for the beam when it comes to high traffic backend services. I think the case is different for live view actually, but we were talking about high traffic backends around the time of that RFC. You bring up the point of it. It's social problems as well because it's people. And I think a lot of us who have ever been in like a lead position, you'll have a new hire who comes in and they say, oh, we should be writing this in Go or Java or Scala or Clojure, you know, whatever that, you know, pick whatever it is. They're just going to come in and say, you should be doing this. So I think there is that kind of knee jerk reaction to kind of expect that and just dismiss it. And so I think the idea of the swarm 
is really powerful because it becomes more of a grassroots thing. Like I'm advocating it with my coworkers, with my teammates, because they're in the trenches. They're seeing the same problems, the same problems that they're dealing with. This helps solve. And if we can identify, yes, this helps solve these problems, then there's more of like, wow, you know, three-fourths of the team is all coming and saying we should be doing this or investigating this further. That has a lot of a, a whole different feel. So let's jump in a little bit more on where you ended up with this because you talked about live view and I'd like to dig more into that. So maybe we could identify the problem space a little bit more. You'd already kind of alluded to it now, which I think is you had a business need and like no teammates or <laughs> no resources set up for it. Or maybe you can kind of explain that a little bit more so we can get a, a picture of this. So we were about to launch the second ad platform that I was talking about that lets artists promote their work. And we were weeks away from the launch and we had a wall, if you will, of CLI commands that we could run in order to understand which campaigns were being booked and, and poke at different microservices to see like how they would respond for a particular user or what have you. And that's not very friendly, right? The, a wall of like 20 plus CLI commands. And it's something that only backend engineers can really utilize. And so there was a need, and I had learned this really from the first ad platform that I built, is that there's a need for a debugging portal. And that will allow us to monitor what's being booked by customers, but also allow us to troubleshoot. And so you can have a simple form that says, like, give me a user ID or give me a campaign ID. And it can tell you a bunch of information potentially aggregated from numerous data sources. So I, I knew that that need was, would come and we were running out of time and all of the teams were busy fixing bugs, gearing up for the launch, basically all the final checks. And so there was no one left to devote to building this application. And so I volunteered, I was the architect for this uh, entire initiative and decided like, okay, I, I've carved out some, some time for myself. So I will champion at least gathering the requirements and putting a proposal in place of various options that we can use to build this thing. Those were the constraints and the RFC was listing all the requirements, but then laying out a few different ways of mixing and matching technologies. And so there was the kind of standard stack, the golden path, as we call it. And that was a React single page application with a Java backend API. And if you needed to aggregate data from multiple data sources, then the approved method is to use GraphQL. So you'd end up with these three things that you'd have to maintain. And then there's a just mix and match there where you could potentially say, well, what if we just did this all in Java and had it render HTML? What are the trade-offs there? What if you use Node and some sort of server rendered like Next.js, if you will? And then it was, well, there is this thing called Live View that we saw when we were doing a ton of research on the beam for the, the RFC, the 26 pager. And that sounded amazing on paper. You didn't have to write any JavaScript. I was familiar already with Elixir, the language. I was already familiar with the beam and I so badly knew the benefits of the, the introspection and the concurrency. And so it looked really, really great on paper and, but no one had experience with it. And so we had to frame it as a proof of concept. Let's just try this thing out. Let's see if it lives up to what it's saying it can do. And then we'll adjust and, and we'll revisit and see if we want to invest in this thing further. And the proof of concept went incredibly well. The day that I opened up the live view documentation is the same day I built the first feature. And then it took another day to get it into production, you know, building the Docker file or what have you and getting it into Spotify infrastructure. 
And so it was for me, just that speed was very, very different, very unique. And more features came as a result of that extremely quickly. And so that was really the problem space. And, and that was the introduction of live view and, and what kicked off a proof of concept. One of the benefits I've really seen with live view is, you know, you have the, the spa JavaScript front end, and then you need something. It's either a rest API or GraphQL and GraphQL is one of the things I was really excited about because it solved all these other API problems, but you're just dealing with all these layers and dealing with converting the data from one format to be serializable and then deserialize it back and all of that and that needing all the complexity just kind of goes away when you're doing live view. And so I know live view is not a perfect solution for all situations, right? It's just not perfect for everything, but it sounds like it was a good fit for this because it was a backend tool, right? An administrative tool. Is that, is that the idea that that was who the audience was? This was a tool to help engineers, it turns out that product managers also really love this tool because it gives <laughs> them insight and, and it gives them the data at their fingertips. But that was the, the, the idea. And I think what's pretty amazing about Live View, first off, a, a challenge to the status quo is, do you really need offline mode? And the answer for an internal application is no, most likely no. Do you need extremely rich client rendered UIs like Google Maps-ish? And the answer is no. This was, in fact, extremely simple. And so why would we invest in a hand-rolled single-page application? Why would we also then do a Java backend API? Why would we require two specialists to build these things? And then GraphQL, why would we maintain all of these things when clearly we don't need, our problem doesn't fit those particular tools? And so LiveView was great because, in, in fact, there's only one test suite that you write. And, and so it kind of jams the capabilities of all of those things together. So you write us a, a single test suite that interacts with the rendered component, potentially mocks out some backend response, and you don't have to write tests for the single page app and then write tests if they even make sense or are valuable, especially if you're just proxying data on the backend. And then who knows what with, to do with the GraphQL portion of it. And so it allows for so much speed. And then you just cut away the single page application needs because to this day, we still haven't written any JavaScript and it's been a year. To quote Mark from a previous episode, I forget which, but the best API is no API. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you, you just, yeah, like you said, you cut out all these layers. It's, it's not necessary. And to quote your article, Joel, this can be overwhelming at times, but you need to realize pushing technology boundaries is a marathon. Ah, that hit me. <laughs> you need to really believe in the value of the technology and be willing to stake your reputation on it. End quote. That was really important for me to hear. You know, especially with your experience, you said that you've written a 27 page, you know, a logical explanation of where the beam fits. And there's several scenarios for that. There's high traffic scenarios, how it handles concurrency. There's also now a little bit later, there's the new scenario where it's very productive for a small team of, of people where you can eliminate layers and get shipped to production and still be incredibly performant. But it doesn't happen overnight necessarily. At least the socio part of it, that part is a marathon. Do you think that it has turned out well for you to stake your reputation on Elixir and Erlang at Spotify so far? This is difficult because you're fighting incentives and there are certain incentives that say stick with the status quo 
and you're on the path towards promotion and you have to make peace with yourself if you believe in the technology so much so that you're willing to go against those headwinds and those incentives to continue to fight to prove what you see and the point of a marathon is that yeah it doesn't happen overnight it's the sum of so many different interactions with your teammates with management documents that you write to objectively lay out the benefits, talks that you give to show people, to introduce them to the live view programming model, to introduce them to Elixir and the Beam. You have to bring this technology to every single person differently. That is extremely taxing. And you cannot give the company all the risk. You cannot say, I think we should use Elixir and I will duck out and hide when things go wrong. You have to be the champion. You have to be willing to solve all of the problems that come your way in order to support your teammates in using this technology, in order to prove the value that you believe is there. And you have to have the grit that in the face of rejection, when people tell you no, that you will continue to fight for it. Over the past year and a half to two years that I've been working with the beam, almost every week I question whether or not I'm doing the right thing when so many people think I'm doing the wrong thing. And what gets me motivated, what recharges my batteries is a tiny, tiny win that week (laughs) of someone that was like, oh, I just shipped my first thing in live view and it took less than two hours and I'm a backend engineer. And it's like, (laughs) like, that's a win. That's exactly what I've been saying. Or someone in our Elixir, like grassroots community at Spotify is like, hey, I want to help you with a package, uh, a private uh, registry. <laughs> and I'm just like, yes. And they're not even on my team. And that's amazing. And, and these little wins just, they keep you going. And then the losses will come. The, the rejections will come. Management will start to doubt you. Your support system will start to question themselves. Because if the headwinds are against all of you, you either need an ally to protect you from those headwinds that's high up, that's a decision maker, or what you're doing is asking everyone around you that is willing to go on this journey with you to go into those headwinds. And not everyone wants to. So it's a long haul effort. You have to be that champion and be willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means sacrificing your own career progression. That's some wisdom right there, I think. Yeah. You say this and you know, you know, you, we introduced you, you, you're a staff engineer at Spotify. So, so title wise, I imagine there's not much more above that title, you know, title wise. Is that, are, are you saying that it was difficult to get there because of all the bets you made on, on Erling? Or is it all, is it, is it the journey now that you are staff and now you have all this other pressure, all this other, you have to champion, you have to exhaust yourself, you know, uh, to, to, to be that champion. So I was already staff when I moved into the area building that business for promoting artists work and found the beam when I was already staff. And when you think about senior staff, that's when you really start to understand the incentives at play and whether or not you're upsetting folks by continuing to be this annoying champion for this piece of technology (laughs) that, uh, (laughs) that, that isn't widely used in the industry. And so, yeah, it's, it's that it's, it's questioning your progression in your career uh, and what's going to get you to the next level and whether or not you're working along the lines that get you there or working against them. For the the listener out there who is saying, 
you know, they're excited about Elixir. I've, I've been this guy, right? I've, I've been in this position where I'm really excited about it. I see a lot of the potential. This solves these problems for me. And they're advocating for it at their company. And in smaller companies, I think it's easier to get that buy-in. There's just less momentum, less inertia already in the path of where things are going. So it's easier to get buy-in. But, you know, just talking about that idea of saying, I'm staking my reputation on it. When things go wrong, I will help. I will be the one to go to, like, when we're going to production. How do we deploy to production? You know, you have to say, I'm going to be accountable and take all of that. That's scary, right? Because as someone who's excited about Elixir, I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel confident in myself. I've only been doing this for six months, a year, whatever, how long you've been playing with it and doing projects. But it's scary. Do you have any thoughts? Was it scary for you to to put yourself in that position? Or do you have any advice for someone who's feeling that way? It's scary to this day. And it's two years in. And you have to be able to dig yourself out of that hole. And I think you, you have to have that confidence in yourself to know that you can solve any of those technical problems that come your way. And if you don't have that confidence yet, you better get it. <laughs> and And this will be trial by fire to get it. I do think it can be helpful to have maybe a group, like a, not necessarily specifically a mentor, but a group that you can talk to, uh, to say, Hey, this is what I'm running into. How do I do this? Can you point me in the right direction? Can you get, help me get unblocked? So I think, you know, consultants can do that, but even just like a local meetup, making connections with people there can give you more confidence just because you say, it's not just me. It's not, I have resources I can tap into. Did you lean on anything like that yourself or what was it like for you there? My teammate Nico had been using the beam for 10 years. I intentionally didn't want to get help from him because I was looking to master my stack and I couldn't do that with the JVM and the standard stack. And so I, in order to see if the beam was actually a solution to that problem, I had to go alone with this thing. And and so I didn't rely on him too much there. In terms of meetups, in terms of community events, conferences, and so forth. That was more to learn as much as possible, continually searching for what is that glaring thing that will justify why I shouldn't use this? Like, what is that skeleton in the closet? What am I missing? Exactly. What am I missing here? This can't be all perfect, right? There's got to be something wrong with it. Where is it looking for the thing like that no one's talking about that this is the problem you're going to hit? I'm still looking and it's been two years. And I am very serious about it and try to stay objective and try to check my bias here. And I think what's difficult about it is that the deeper you go into trying to find that, that thing that will prove to you that this is the wrong choice, the more in love you fall with this technology. <laughs> and, you know, the beam is one thing. Elixir is another thing. Live view is another thing. And then you have live book and, and there's just so much like, amazing innovation and it excites you and the properties of the beam and the design choices just solve so much of your pain that that led me to this this area and it's so easy to get in love with this thing and then the rejections hurt they sting so badly because you're so in love with this thing but it it builds that conviction and you know at the end of the day you have to determine what you want to achieve where's your happiness would you be happy as a senior staff engineer or would you be happy as a staff engineer that gets to code Elixir? And that's kind of what the conversation I have with myself to kind of push on through. So are there any success stories after doing this for two years? Are there other projects that have spun up 
The product that we built with LiveView is really successful. Many, many teams are actually using this tool, this portal on a daily basis, and non-technical stakeholders are also using it. And in fact, they're viewing <laughs> LiveView because because it mashes all of these capabilities together, as I was talking about, and reduces the set of tests you have to write, you can move so quickly with this thing that uh, product managers refer to it as a way of building cheap UIs. And so it's fascinating to learn and see this evolve because now when it comes to, hey, we could build out a UI to serve a particular internal stakeholder and it would take two specialists and take maybe a sprint or, or more or we could actually just build it into with live view and build it super cheap, but it'll be reliable and fast and usable and so forth. And then we can learn with that minimal investment. We can learn as to how our stakeholders really take to this tool. And those learnings will inform when we're ready to build it out in the golden path and invest a ton of resources. So that's a win as well. There are also other smaller wins where Elixir enthusiasts around the company build Slack bots or little internal tools with it. And, and we, we support each other and we, we talk about the language and we share talks that we've watched that inspire us. And, um, yeah, we, we keep each other, I guess, engaged in this community and, and inspire each other to want to help each other out when we're solving a problem or what have you. So yeah, there've been some wins. Sounds like you're building up yourself a little swarm there. Try. <laughs> So you did mention that it's used by a lot of teams, which I think is really neat. And so you have people who have never touched Elixir and they're needing to come in and add a feature to this that's for their own purposes. And what has that been like for them? You kind of highlight in your blog post saying they're able to like copy and paste something as a starting point. Kind of describe what that's like for someone who's wanting to add something and they've never touched Elixir. Are they coming back and saying, Joel, I can't believe you did this to me. This is terrible. Like I had to look, look at this language. It doesn't have objects. I don't know what to do. You know, what was that like for them? Some features are more complicated than others. If you're poking at a microservice, really that boils down to a simple form that maybe has one or two inputs. You hit a submit button. It sends the input parameters to the backend service and the backend service spits back a response. And you can just put that in a pre-tag, right? And, and display the JSON blob or what have you. That's super simple. And the fact that it's all isolated, like because of live view, all of the logic is contained within a live view. So you copy and paste an existing live view that has those those types of needs, right? A simple form that queries a backend and displays the response. You can copy and paste that, modify the HTML a little bit, and minimal changes. You don't really have to know what you're doing, and you'll see it right there on the page. And so that's really empowering, especially when you have data engineers that write Scala. To ask them to learn Java and then also learn JavaScript to put a simple thing in place that's a big leap. And in fact, they won't contribute to apps built with that, those uh, technologies. Instead, you have a very simple live view and they can go ahead and, and, and change it. Now, that's the one case. There are other cases that are a bit more complex, like a table of, of entries that you'd like to display. What I love about live view, really, I think Elixir in this regard is that it lets you go as quickly as as you want. And it lets you slow down when you want to start to layer on things like type specs or have responses that are modeled as structs and pass that along into your templates and so forth. So you can go really cheap with it. 
just raw, um, we don't use HTTP, but we use a different protocol, raw requests to the back end and just display something right there. Error handling is minimal. And then you're like, done. Now I can come back to it and start to extract things out, maybe make a little client library here with some structs, maybe add some type specs and so forth. And so you get a chance to say, like, just go with the simplest approach. And then we'll, as you get confident, we'll layer on some extra things there. And so that's not to say that people don't have stumbling blocks, but you have to support and champion them. You have to be willing to drop what you're doing to say, all right, well, let's figure this out and explain it, which means you have to understand more than they do in terms of what's underneath the abstractions to be able to reason about it, to be able to explain that a live view is a gen server. Well, what's a gen server? All right, let's talk about processes and let's talk about where processes fall over a little bit. And then that's where a gen server comes into play. Look at these callbacks. That's a gen server callback. And you start to build up from there. And that's on you as the champion to actually provide that education and support. Well, Joel, this has been a really fun talk. I know just in talking with the other guys here, this has been one that we think is really valuable. This is a whole discussion because I think sometimes as developers, we get caught up in the tech that this is technically superior. You know, I can like with your 27 page document, you're really nailing it down. Like this is better for these reasons. And that just doesn't win hearts and minds. And we need to kind of step back sometimes and remember, you know, we're talking to people. They have their own lives they're living. When they go home from work, they want to leave work alone and they don't want to be afraid that, hey, if I make this decision, is that going to, you know, I'm going to be working on weekends because things are going all crazy and it's a bad choice, right? So there's a lot more going on there. And I love that we're able to talk about the social aspects of it and you're able to share that part of your journey. So I do want to mention and point out to you, dear listener, Joel has this awesome blog post where he kind of goes through some of this in some more depth on some of how he handled this and in, in the, the process. So we're going to have a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out and use that as a resource for themselves. Uh, but Joel, is there anything else you want to share as a closing thought? Don't lose hope. Bank on your encouragement with this technology. Use that passion. Let it fuel you. Stay strong mentally. Take care of yourself. You're going to get rejected a bunch. But I think a lot of us that come to the community really believe in this technology and we become champions of it. And so uh, you have support, um, whether it be in your company or outside of it and folks that have gone through this before and they can help you along the way. Love that. Nice. Here, Here's a community proposal then. You know, we, we call ourselves elixirists. We call ourselves alchemists. I say we call ourselves champions. We're, we're elixir champions. I think, I think that should be just right up there with elixirists and, and alchemists, you know, champions right up there with it. Well, Joel, if people want to get in touch with you or follow up, maybe they have a follow up question. Uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm Mr. Joel Kemp on Twitter. That's the easiest place to find me. All right. We'll have a link to that in the show notes too. And thank you, Joel, for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to share with us this process. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.